Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble on me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 55, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, October the 30th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, to be honest with you. We're, um, we've, we've got Nehemiah 4, 1 through 23, uh, Revelation 7, 4 to 17, and then Matthew 13, 31 to 55. So we've got 60-something verses to deal with today. So we're going to get through it quickly as we possibly can, but still doing justice to the to the text itself. So remember that Nehemiah has been building the wall, and he's got this opposition from some of the others who are outsiders to Jerusalem. And so the, the opposition is mostly just chatter and talk, trying to discourage the people is primarily. And remember what I was saying yesterday was is that, that Nehemiah's genius and his greatness lie in his dedication and focus on the job at hand and didn't allow himself to get distracted by this other nonsense. So here we are in chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You hear all this, and, and, and you're working on this project that seems like an insurmountable thing to do, and, and now you get this nonsense going on, on the outside. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Nehemiah didn't take the time to argue with them. He just prays, hear, O God, for we are despised, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I mean, it's just as simple as that, right? Teach them what it feels like to be in this same situation. Allow their guilt to come upon them because they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In other words, they're making this worse than it needs to be. This is the work you've given us to do. They're not fighting with us. They're fighting with you because we're doing your will. So we built the wall, <laughs> and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people out of mind to work. So they're moving along, getting this done. It's halfway up. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They're doing the things that they're supposed to do. They hear the rumor, they pray about it, and then they take action as well, to be prepared for this threat. 
And so in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. So there's beginning to be grumbling and murmuring like there was in the wilderness over the task at hand. The strength of those who bear the burdens is is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. There's too much stuff. There's too much to be removed. It's a bigger mess. And so the people who are bearing the burdens, who are carrying all these things, the strength of these people is wearing out. And our enemies said they'll not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And what is the problem with these people? Why are they opposing this work? Can't they see and don't they understand that in opposing this work, they're opposing the edict of the king? At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, the people who were there who were not engaged in the work, not helping in the work, but who live among these other people are just coming in and saying, come on, y'all just come back with us, just come back with us. And and you know that the that what they're saying is it's safer, these people are going to attack you, you're never going to finish the wall. And so it's not just the enemies, it's also the family at some level. It's other Jews who are now doing this. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So, no, we're going to be plenty safe here. We're going to have all this backup to the people who are working on the walls. And I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spear, shields, and bows and coats of mail. So you can just see this wall being built and half the people only or half the people are working. The other half are standing there in preparedness in case an attack comes against them. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So they're only being able to move half of what they'd be able to carry otherwise because they've got to have a weapon in order to protect themselves as they carry these burdens out. And each of the builders had his sword strapped onto his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So he's overseeing the entire thing Nehemiah is he's he he had gotten them to work on the parts of the wall that were near where their homes and their businesses were with the idea that that's the part you're going to care the most about so the workmanship's going to be good and you're going to want to do this as quickly as possible in order to get your area protected so the so then he has the man sounding the trumpet beside him and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall Far from one another, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so he's going to use the trumpeter to call the people to where they hear the sound if there's an attack, and everybody will know where to go in order to carry on the fight here. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people, 
at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so the work is the important thing, and they're not going to be deterred from the work. It's going to take a little longer, although it takes a remarkably brief period of time. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But it, it's unbelievable, the work that he did, but they, but he kept everybody focused on the work in front of him. And I think that that's a, the mark of a great leader, is to say, I've taken care of the problem. We, we have a plan if things go badly, but we're going to continue at the work that we've been given to do with the belief that we're going to get this thing accomplished no matter what anybody thinks of what we're doing. And so Nehemiah has prepared he has a plan, and he's executing the plan. He, he adjusts the plan at any time that he needs to. And so that's the way we as leaders in any shape, form, or fashion, in our family, in our churches, in our work, whatever it is, need to be thinking the same way. We need to commit our plans to God, and then whenever there's problems, we need to commit that to God, and then we need to come up with that contingency plan that allows the work of the building the kingdom to continue. From there, we're going to move over to the gospel, and so Jesus is still speaking to the people, and he puts another parable before him. The kingdom of heaven is like, hang on, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This garden plants thing, that goes back actually to the beginning of creation, that there was nobody there to till the land so that these other plants weren't there, these things that had to, that required somebody to husband them. And so when Jesus talks about the garden plants, he's not talking about the mustard seed being the great, producing the greatest tree around. It's larger than all the garden plants, those things that are tended by human beings, as opposed to trees that come up. And so Jesus is making it simple that this thing starts small and then grows into something that provides fruit, and it also provides shelter and everything else. It's everything you need. He then told another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And we know that, that if you're making bread, you need only a small sachet of um, of yeast in order to leaven the entire thing. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that things that begin small can produce great results in the end, like the mustard seed or like the, the leaven, the little bit of leaven that you put in to your, your mixture to make your bread produces a great increase in what actually is there. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed, he was saying nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter what's been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, the one we talked about yesterday. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what he's saying is, is that, that in the church there will be a mixed group of people. Some of those people will be truly Christian. Some of those people will not be truly Christian. We have to have the discernment and the wisdom to know one from another. And it's by their fruit, Jesus says, that you'll know them. And so we need to always be measuring fruit, measuring what what you're doing for the kingdom, because that has to be the most important thing, which is the transition that he's getting ready to make. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Not for the field, but for for the treasure that's hidden in it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And our attitude is supposed to be the same about the kingdom of heaven. It's supposed to be worth everything to us. And therefore, like the rich young ruler, he calls us to give up everything else for the pursuit of that kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? I mean, people are are baffled by this. They're focusing on what they know rather than what they see. So when he says things like, he who has ears to hear or who has eyes to see, then then what he's saying is, is, is just pay attention and understand what's actually going on. They're trying to judge him now based on what they know of him, and now they just don't know where he got this teaching and these works that he's doing. And we have to always keep our eyes open to the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of God because we never know. We see small things, and we judge those small things. We see other things, and we judge those things. And our judgment is flawed very, very frequently. It's exactly like with David when um, Samuel went to, um, to to name a new king to, to anoint him. He, the evidence of his eyes was, these guys are big, good-looking dudes. They're the ones who ought to be the king, probably. And God kept saying no. And then the one who had been overlooked, even by his father, is the one that, that God chooses. And, and I think that, that we need to, to not... I know too many people who measure things by how big they are. Um, too many people who measure ministries based on how large those ministries are. And I've seen very small ministries that, that are having a huge impact. And I'm, I'm drawn to those people. And it's we've got to be looking at the fruit. What is it producing? You know, it, What kind of people is it producing for the kingdom of God? Is it producing that kind of fruit? So here in Revelation, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then all those tribes are listed, beginning with Judah and ending with Benjamin. And then we, we come on and he says, after this, I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So there's 144,000 from the tribes, which is a very large number, 
And the intention is that it's a very large number, not that it's 144,000, but that it's a very large number. But then he says, then I saw a great multitude that no one could number. So it's an even bigger number than that from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so you've got the people of Israel and then the people from all the rest of the earth, this great multitude that no one could number. It sounds, again, similar to what, we're, what Abraham is told about the, the number of people who will be his children at the end. And maybe I've told this before, I'm not sure, um, but I'm going to tell it again now. One of the beliefs that Jewish people have about the afterlife is, is that ultimately everyone will be resurrected in the land. And so they'll all appear in the land because that's where, the, in their belief, the temple will be. And, but that's where the presence of God will be. And we know that, that w- there will be a, a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down. We know there's no temple there. But, but what they believe is, is that all the people from all over the earth, whether they're alive or dead, will be gathered into Jerusalem at the resurrection. And so it's, it, it's an odd mechanism, to say the least, for those who are not in the land, and I won't go into all that right now. But here's what I want you to know, that the way they see it and the way they understand the resurrection is something that's going to be surprising when I first say it to you, and that is is that the last people to be resurrected are actually Abraham and Sarah. I would have thought they would have been the first. They would have warranted being first in the resurrection because they were the mother and father of the nation. But that's not the way they see it. They, they, they see it as the mother and father of the nation. But, but here's the reason they say that they'll be resurrected last, because they will then be resurrected and see the fullness of God's promise realized in, in this countless multitude who stands before them. And that, at that moment, their joy will be complete. It, it's just beautiful. It's all I can do right now not to cry when I say that. It's that touching and that beautiful an idea. So you've got this this group of people claiming that salvation belongs to God and the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they, the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures, fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, he didn't know, John didn't. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What a beautiful picture that is, is that, that these have gone through the struggles and the trials and the tribulation. And, and what's made them pure is the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's God's promise to you. That's the 23rd Psalm writ large throughout eternity. It's a beautiful picture. I'm not sure that it gets any better than that. And so we know that if we persevere, if we continue through whatever tribulation might stand before us, that ultimately you'll neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun will not strike you nor any scorching heat. 
The lamb in the midst of the throne will be your shepherd and he will guide you to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And the call on our lives is to persevere, to continue with the work the way Nehemiah persevered with the work and to set the thing before you, the goal like Nehemiah had in building the wall and building the temple. Your goal is to build the kingdom of God and seek it with all your heart.